This is Democracy. A podcast about the people of the United States. A podcast about citizenship. About engaging with politics and the world around you. A podcast about educating yourself on today's important issues. And how to have a voice in what happens next. Welcome to our new episode of This Is Democracy. Today, we're going to talk about uh, a country that always stands out in any historical examination of uh, the Western world, such as there is a Western world, and examinations of European security. Uh, this is the country of Hungary, which historically has uh, played an absolutely pivotal role in every era of modern development in Europe. And it's a country that always stands out because of its linguistic uniqueness, its historical uniqueness. Um, and uh, again, the role it plays often between uh, large empires uh, to its east and to its west. Uh, today, Hungary is led by Viktor Orban, an elected leader uh, of Hungary, who um, in the eyes of many, particularly in Western Europe and the United States, is not a fully participating member of NATO and the EU. Yet, of course, Hungary is a full member of NATO and the EU. And in the context of the war in Ukraine, the role of Hungary is particularly important in thinking about uh, future East-West relations and the development of the European Union and NATO responses to uh, Russia. We're fortunate today to be joined by a colleague and friend who knows more about Hungary and the wider European landscape uh, than almost anyone else I know. Uh, this is Lawrence Radai, who we've had on the podcast, I think, before. Uh, he is a professor of instruction at the LBJ School at the University of Texas at Austin. He also served as a press officer in the European Parliament, which is the directly elected legislature of the European Union. And in that role, uh, he really gained a lot of insight, I think, as someone who managed relations uh, for the press corps and for many different uh, members of the European Parliament on its Foreign Affairs Committee. He's written uh, quite a bit and done research on these experiences and on European politics, the European Union, and uh, questions of democracy and security in Europe. So we're fortunate to have his European expertise and his Hungarian expertise. Uh, he is a native of Hungary, in fact. Uh, so, Lawrence, thank you for joining us today. It's a pleasure to be here. Before we turn to our discussion with Lawrence, we have, of course, Mr. Zachary Suri's poem. What's the title of your poem today, Zachary? In Between. Let's hear it. In between, we are in between. The lampposts in Budapest count one, two, three up the banks, and while the sun sets, you count the minutes until darkness. Three, two, one. They are laughing at us. The river is laughing at us. Indignantly, we strut along its sides, stare at each other from across the way, and, with cold feet, we wade into the river's depths to emerge redeemed or covered in its cold sludge. In between, counting one, two, three, until it is all gone. In between, the days go by four, five, six, and still we are in between. They are laughing at us. From oceans away, they are laughing at us. Because we couldn't even bear to see the street musician covered in his silver paint flinch or tip his hat or hold up the newspaper in the square and wave it at us as if it were supposed to mean something. 
in between, we are in between, the lampposts count up to a million along the banks of the Danube, while the sun sets, while the missiles can be heard falling some miles away, one, two, three, you have forgotten who you are, blink thrice, one, two, three, and the lights will all flicker on, one by one, blink thrice, one, two, three, and maybe you'll miss the end of the world. Your, your poem, Zachary, it really feels to me like a late 19th century Budapest or city of one kind or another with the lampposts and the lights. Uh, what is that what you're going for here? I guess so. I think my poem is really about uh, Hungary, but also the place of, of, of where my ancestors came from, which is Hungary, but also other parts of Central and Eastern Europe, uh, and how they are both in between East and West, but also between past and future. And I think and I think some of the pathologies that seem to come out in the Orban regime are the pathologies of of that kind of trauma, but also that sense of historical weight. Yeah. Yeah, that that's actually a very interesting way of thinking about it. Uh, uh, Lawrence, as we think about the war in Ukraine, is, is Zachary's theme accurate for understanding um, the, the Hungarian government's position as as both a member of NATO and the EU? and also an ally of Russia? Does this, does this help to inform our understanding? Absolutely. I think um, even the last time that I was on this uh, podcast, I was wondering how I was going to start. And then um, uh, Zachary's poem gave us the, the perfect intro, and it's the same thing today. And that's exactly what I was going to start with, is that um, the Hungarian Prime Minister, Viktor Orban, has been especially clever and astute in figuring out exactly that space of in-between that he can, he can hold both as a staunch ally of Putin, which he has been for years now, um, as well as sort of keeping a, a foot in, uh, in the Western world and in, in these uh, important international organizations, the EU and NATO, right? So Orban has not um, hidden from anybody, right, that he is an admirer of uh, Vladimir Putin and a close ally of his. Um, they share a lot of... Uh, their worldview uh, of this illiberal nationalism that um, that they think is the uh, is the only reasonable response to sort of globalized liberal um, encroachment, and at the same time, of course, um, Hungary has remained a, a member of the European Union and of NATO, and um, uh, has not even really flirted with the idea of leaving either of these organizations. And I think Orban has been able to to get away with this. Um, Kind of in two ways, right? He has gotten away with it domestically because he controls the media landscape in Hungary. Um, he can use TV, radio, newspapers, all of these are in the hands of his allies um, to push whatever message he wants to the population. So uh, this kind of in-betweenness is, is justified on a daily basis in, in the press wherever you look. And the only independent press really that's left in Hungary is online, which except for basically in Budapest doesn't reach the vast majority of the population. And then the second question is, you know, and this is, I think, the tougher one to explain, which is how Orban has gotten away with this internationally, right? Why the EU and NATO haven't responded and why he hasn't been punished for this kind of in-betweenness. And I would suggest that it's because he's very clever at walking that line. He never goes so far as to trigger a real backlash. Um, he's been a thorn in the side of his Western colleagues for, for years, but he's always kind of a nuisance, never really a threat, never really an existential threat. And so he knows exactly how far he can push his Western allies and when he needs to concede or climb down. Um, but 
I think actually, you know, the dynamics of how this works are actually quite different in NATO versus in the EU, but we can get into that later. I, I actually, that's exactly where I was, I was thinking uh, we could go, uh, Lawrence. Uh, h- how do we see this in practice? Maybe let's start with NATO. At a moment when uh, NATO is sending in an unprecedented number of arms and other sources of support to the Ukrainian government, often through Poland, but sometimes through Hungary, uh, how do we understand Hungary's role in that uh, operation? So I think that the relationship between Orban and, and NATO is interesting because Orban has never really used NATO as a boogeyman. Um, he has never openly criticized NATO or questioned Hungary's NATO membership. And for the most part, he has also refrained from vetoing NATO initiatives or from creating real trouble within the organization. There are a few exceptions to this, but um, for the most part, um, he, he hasn't really been um, very active in trying to undermine NATO. Um, and you know, there might be different reasons for this. I think the first is that um, NATO is kind of an all or nothing deal. Um, the main point of NATO is, uh, is Article 5, right, which, which basically means that uh, an attack on one NATO member is considered an attack on all, and therefore um, there's a huge benefit to Hungary for being under the United States' nuclear umbrella and being defended from any and um, and all uh, military encroachments um, by this alliance. Um, but it's not like you can really get concessions from NATO that would be economic or political or diplomatic. Um, NATO doesn't have that kind of um, power. It's not that kind of institution. So there's no real point in trying to you know, fin- finesse this in any way. And then the other reason is, you know, within NATO, the most important um, state is the United States. And as we've seen over the past decade or so, um, a big chunk of the political elite in the United States, especially uh, on one side of the political spectrum, actually looks to Orban as, a, um, as an inspiration or as a, a model to follow. And so there's, there's also less of this um, ideological um, opposition, I think, between um, NATO and uh, and Hungary because um, because of the big footprint that that the United States has on NATO. So is is that an issue though now, Lawrence? With um, as you say, there having been a kind of at least a, a great deal of comfort between Orban and many of the people around Donald Trump, particularly Tucker Carlson, who in fact spent time with Orban and promoted him on his show. Uh, is there now a tension that you have, in a sense, Donald Trump's ne- nemesis, Joe Biden, as president and and a sort of anti-Trump government in the United States? Has that changed the relationship between Hungary and NATO? I, mean, I think it, it has changed the, the U.S.-Hungarian relationship a little bit, but it's more that instead of uh, a very frequent backslapping, right now there's basically just silence. It's not like Joe Biden has made it a priority to call out uh, Viktor Orban for all of the um, steps that he's taking to to build uh, an illiberal state um, within the within Europe. Um, there's been some quiet rebukes. Um, Biden had this summit of democracies and Hungary wasn't invited and these kinds of things, but it hasn't really been vocal or really important. Um, and at the same time, I think you know any um, any foreign state to the United States who looks at the future of, of, of their state's relationship with, with the U.S. Um, probably 
has this thought that, you know, you never know who's going to be in power in two years. Um, and the, the actual um, links between the conservative movement in the United States and Orban have, have only grown stronger since then. I mean, just this past week, um, the Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, um, organized its first um, meeting in Europe in Budapest with you know, basically all of um, the Orban government taking center stage and, and being given this, this platform to, to talk about how they have built up their system. Um, so I think these links are, are being, being forged and, and are, are, are stronger than ever. Um, but of course, you know, for that to really have an impact, of course, um, you know, um, there would need to be a, a, another change in government in the United States, but I don't think that's out of the question. Uh, that's extraordinary. I did not know that that CPAC, which is one of the strongest, most influential conservative organizations, that they actually had just done an event in Budapest with Orban. I didn't. I did not know that. So this is actually very interesting. Um, this made a lot of news in Hungary, and I have not seen any press about this in the United States. Hmm. And, and I'm, uh, you know me, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but the fact that <laughs> nobody is talking about this, about the fact that uh, an openly illiberal regime is basically hosting the biggest sort of conservative um, talk shop, right, um, and, and policy platform um, in the United States, it's quite extraordinary to me. Um, and actually, some of the media that have been talking about this, um, about this event, have actually been talking about the fact that they are the only ones talking about it. Um, so if you look at the English language press, it's almost just, there's just a few, um, uh, a few newspapers that are reporting on it, The Guardian being one of them. But it's, it's really interesting to, to, to know that, you know, you who follow the region quite closely even didn't hear about this. Right. No, that's extraordinary. It's particularly interesting to me, too, because uh, I think that uh, we as Americans have this idea that uh, what happens politically in other countries is, is, is really just ancillary to our own political disputes, but it seems like this is proving that it's almost fueling or at least justifying a lot of what's going on at home. Uh, but I think also there, there remains a broader question, which is why should Americans care about the regime in Hungary beyond simply uh, the way it affects us? Because it seems like there, there have been a lot of violations, not just of democratic norms, uh, but of human rights that are going on in Hungary that need to be addressed uh, by our government, considering that there is such a close relationship between the two. Yeah, I mean, the question of, um, of, of why the U.S. should care, I, I, I hate to be so flippant about it, but I'm not sure that the United States cares all that much. And I think that's one of the reasons why there hasn't been really much pushback from the Biden administration on, on, um, uh, on all of these issues is because um, they have more important things on their plate, right? Um, I think the way in which it matters, right, is that right now Hungary is the main locus or agent of disunity within the European Union. And for the United States, I think, especially with this conflict um, uh, that uh, Russia, this war that Russia is waging in, in Ukraine, it's really important to have a united Europe that's, um, that's hand in hand with the United States on sanctions policy, on arms exports on supporting the Ukrainian regime. Um, and up until now, actually, I've, I've been very surprised at how seamlessly the United States and, and Europe have been cooperating um, <clears throat> on supporting the Ukrainian population. And that, I think, um, is the, the, the real risk to European unity on that is actually the Hungarian government. Hmm. So so maybe we can talk about that a bit, Lawrence. Uh, 
you you gave a very good description of uh, Hungary's unique role with regard to NATO. Uh, the the EU obviously cares about a lot of these issues, uh, particularly the issues around human rights, issues around borders, and various other things. How how has Hungary's relationship with the EU evolved the last year or two? So, I actually think that the change has not been terribly radical. Um, in the sense that Orban's behavior in the EU um, has been relatively um, stable in the sense that he has um, vetoed several important EU initiatives, um, whether it's on human rights in China or um, in the Middle East or on migration policy or on currently the one that he's holding and lording over the, the European Union is the um, uh, he's threatening to veto the um, oil and gas embargo on Russia that the EU is, is hoping to, to pass next week at its uh, next council meeting. Um, so he has been doing this for years now. Um, and again, I think the, the, the reason that he's gotten away with it in the EU is because he knows exactly how far he can push it. So if you think about it, you know, Hungary has vetoed several um, sanctions packages against Russia, but in the end has always relented. Um, it has actually been complying with the um, EU sanctions on Russia that have been in place ever since Russia took Crimea. So in a lot of ways, there's, there's this uh, chest beating. There's a lot of um, rhetoric from Orban that's very anti-EU. Um, and at the same time, there's, there's more um, actual policy in which um, very quietly he kind of climbs down when he, when he realizes that he needs to. And so... The reason for that, I think, is that um, Orban desperately needs EU funds to keep his regime in power, right? Because his his power is, is ensured by by the way that um, he can distribute uh, via various means of corruption um, EU funds to to his his political cronies, and so the EU plays this dual role for him, where he it provides this foil against which he rails all the time. Um, you know, his political um, message is usually that he's protecting. The Hungarian population from uh, from an overreaching Brussels, but the EU also provides the funds that allow him to stay in power, right? So I think it's a much more complicated relationship, um, and he's he's been, I think, extremely adept at knowing exactly where that line is. Now, the question is, at a certain point, does he make a mistake and step over a line that's too important for uh, for the European Union? At which point, um, this kind of falls apart. But for now, he's been very adept at, at managing this, and to be honest. The European Union has been also very weak at um, uh, you know, allowing this to happen and, and um, being content with these kind of last-minute capitulations. Uh, but but I wonder, Lawrence, have we reached a breaking point on the question of uh, Russian energy? Right. It it does seem that there's a consensus in the EU to create not an immediate. Um, stoppage to uh, Russian oil and gas coming into Europe, that's not feasible, but to put Europe on track to liberate itself from dependence on Russian, Russian oil and gas. And so far, it does appear Orban is opposed to that move by Europe, and he could, under under EU rules, he can veto that, as you uh, referred to. It, would that be a breaking point if he sticks on that issue, or do you see him not sticking on that issue? Where do you see that going? So I think we'll have a decent answer to that question next week when the when the European Council meets. And I, I see a couple of potential outcomes, right? So the first is that um, Orban is going to hold out until the very last minute um, so that he can get some sort of concessions from the EU, maybe a longer transition period or more. 
EU funds to help offset the uh, the rising energy costs that such an embargo would come with, right? So basically, just hold out until he's bought off at the last minute. Um, the other alternative I see is that um, you know Hungary will effectively block this move. What that would tell me is actually that Europe was less united on this than it may have seemed that from the outside, right? Um, we know that the German government is not exactly raring to um, wean itself off of uh, oil and gas coming from Russia. It's a, it's a really heavy lift for them. They're very dependent on, um, Germany is very dependent on, on, on Russian oil, especially gas. Um, and so it could actually be to Germany's benefit that um, you know, Hungary makes it seem like they're the ones vetoing this and, and, and quietly Germany is actually thankful for this. Um, the third alternative, and this I think would be your question of if, if there's a rupture, there is talk now of uh, of um, a not quite EU embargo on Russia, which would basically mean that the 26 EU member states without Hungary would agree among themselves to, um, to an oil and gas embargo. And this has come up, um, several people have suggested this, it's kind of in the conversation now. If we see that happening, that I think is a signal that the European Union um, is united and has decided that that Hungary is an outcast, and they will basically just ignore them and go ahead with 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 their um, with their Russia sanctions policy as they see fit, and kind of let Hungary sort of um, you know flap in the wind. And that I think would be a a a, um, a big a big marker of change, and I would expect then Orban to, to very quickly come back into the fold um, as soon as he can without losing face. Can, can the EU do that, Lawrence? So this is a, uh, I always like this question because the answer is always um, no, but of course. Right? So <laughs> the EU cannot in the sense that then it wouldn't be an EU embargo because by definition, it's not the entire EU that's doing it. Um, but you've seen these kinds of um, arrangements, right, where a lot of EU member states agree to do something and it essentially, for all intents and purposes, looks like an EU mechanism, even though technically and legally it's not. You've seen this in the um, after the 2008 financial crisis where they basically wanted to create a bailout fund um, and they didn't want to call it a bailout fund and they didn't. Uh, the member states did not want to associate this with the European Union's institutions, so they basically created something um, that was parallel, but looked and talked and um, sounded exactly like a, a an EU bailout fund. So it's, that's basically a political decision. They can do it. Of course, it's a little bit more complicated because you need to figure out, you know, how to um, uh, keep Hungary from basically being a um, a conduit for um, you know, illegal Russian gas coming in. But right. those those things are are, are fixable problems. Hmm. Hmm. Now, do you see uh, within Hungary? Uh, opinion on Orban, or at least opinion on Hungarian policy changing as a consequence of all these dynamics that we've just discussed? So what I think is really interesting here, and to me was also surprising, is that the Russian war in Ukraine has actually increased Orban's popularity in Hungary. Hmm. Um, And you saw this in the elections that just happened. Um, Orban won, won these elections um, with a very wide margin of support um, and and won it basically on a message that he is the one that should be trusted with Hungary's um, Russia-Ukraine policy. Um, he basically argued that um, he's the one that can keep Hungarians out of this war. 
um, and the opposition would would are, are basically all warmongers who want to to jump jump into this conflict. Um, and it seemed like it was a winning message. So um, so he actually has been strengthened, I think, by his um, by this kind of balancing in between. Um, and um, you know, I, I think he's actually strengthened his hold on 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 uh, Hungarian institutions. Um, uh, just yesterday or the day before, his government announced a new state of emergency, uh, ostensibly due to, to to the war in Ukraine. Um, uh, a previous state of emergency had been in place because of COVID, but that had kind of um, um, gone away. So you know, he's he's popular at home. He's strong and um, and well entrenched in power, and he's I think unlikely to go anywhere anytime soon. Hmm, wow. Wow. And, and does the movement by uh, Finland and Sweden to join NATO, uh, two countries that were formerly neutral, uh, does that change the dynamic uh, within Hungary and for Orban, or is that more of the same? I think that question of itself is not particularly salient in, in Hungary, either for Orban or for anybody else. Um, I, I, I have a tough time imagining that Orban would... Um, would try to veto a Finnish or Swedish accession to NATO. I think he also knows that he can hide behind Ankara and um, uh, uh, President Erdogan's statement that you know he, he's uh, you know the, the the Turkish government is trying to get some concessions before sure. um, before uh, you know saying saying yes to that. So um, uh, so Orban Orban nor his government had said anything on, on on this that 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 makes it seem like they would be ready to veto this. Um, they've been kind of straddling the fence on this um, in general, but um, but I don't think that um, that that's going to make much of a difference. Um, you know, again, NATO is not an, a very important talking point or organization against which Orban can set himself up as the protector of the Hungarian nation. So it's just not really very much in the conversation in Hungary. So what you seem to describe then is sort of a a leader who is. Uh, has almost complete control at home, but in some ways, uh, little leverage abroad, at least uh, within NATO. Uh, but why do you think that uh, of his sort of? What do you think that of his sort of uh, rise, at least in terms of prominence in the American right? Uh, because I think, at least to to me, it's very interesting that the hero uh, of the American right nowadays seems to be more Viktor Orban than Donald Trump. Sometimes, uh, do you think that? That that is sort of significant of a of a broader international profile that he's trying to build as a sort of leader of of the right around the world. So first of all, yes, I think he does have ambitions to become um, a global figure of this. Um, you know, I think what what he calls sort of illiberal democracy, right? Um, I think it's more on the European stage that he's trying to do this. Um, he has for the longest time tried to become. The leader of um, nationalist populist movements um, in Europe, trying to rally, you know, France's Front National and um, them, you know, a bunch of different um, uh, far right or at least populist parties across um, across Europe, um, with not too much success, to be honest. Um, but I think that to to your first question of why he's so popular, um, I think you. You, you hit the nail on the head. I mean, he has some of these characteristics of Trump, but um, he's just much smarter. Um, <laughs> and he actually knows how to pull the levers of power. So I think for American um, 
uh, conservatives who, who believe in this kind of worldview of a more you know, nationalist, illiberal worldview, um, he has shown exactly how you use legal means, right, to change constitutions, to change laws, to um, uh, appoint people to certain key positions, right, where you know, nobody can, can, um, can accuse Viktor Orban of, of, of launching a coup or taking power violently, right? The, the, the genius of what he has done is that he has actually just used democratic means um, to hollow out a lot of those institutions that, that guarantee um, democracy and, and liberal, liberal rights. And that, I think, is very attractive to, um, to this brand of conservatism everywhere, is, is, is that tactic, right? Um, and so for that reason, I think he's, he's, he's been quite popular. And then to your last question, which is about how Viktor Orban is very popular at home, but at the same time, not very influential internationally. I would just add a caveat to that. I don't think he's very influential within NATO, but I do think he's influential in the EU. He's been able to um, get a lot of concessions from the European Union, get a lot of sweetheart deals, get a lot of um, funding from the EU. Um, and he, you know, a lot of these, you know, if you, if you look at the, uh, the press on the EU today, um, the, the, the main things that you see in terms of EU news right now are all about him. Everybody's trying to figure right. out what to do about his, his veto. So he actually can set the agenda in the European Union in a way that I think is, um, is quite extraordinary. So, so I guess uh, the the big historical question I have, and it and it comes to a, a set of themes we explore every every week on the podcast, uh, trying to understand how much of the past we see in the present and and what's new today, that's that's really not a repeat of the past. Uh, it, I, I struggle with that in trying to think about the geopolitics of Europe then today. Uh, is Orban? Uh, a sign of a Europe that's going to back to two camps, back to an East versus West, or is it more a return of what Milan Kundra and others call the unique Central European identity um, that 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 has a curious view of liberalism, a different uh, perspective on democracy, and stands between the two big East and West powers? H how do you see this in that historical framework, Lawrence? So I actually think that this is the wrong way to look at it. What I, when I look at this, I don't see two camps. What I see is actually, especially on, on, on Russia's invasion of Ukraine, what I see is a Western camp and a lonely dude in a little tent in the forest to the side. <laughs> right? and that's, what, right? that's not a camp. Right? Um, that's just, that, that's just a, you know, a, a, it's a tent, a, as you a, said, <laughs> it's just a tent, right. And so, so what I think is actually quite interesting here is precisely the fact that this has not led to a rift between the East and West. What it has led to is a rift within Eastern Europe. Um, if you just looked at um, you know, the, the state of the European Union two years ago, right? there was kind of an emerging um, split between East and West on a lot of different issues. right? You had... Poland and Hungary and Slovenia with their leaders all, you know, following the same kind of illiberal path. Um, you seem to have this kind of, you know, two camps as you talked about, but that has actually disappeared. What I think you've seen in the past couple of months is really the disintegration of this Eastern European bloc. Um, there used to be this thing called the Visegrad group, which was, you know, Poland, Hungary, Czech Republic, and Slovakia. 
um, who coordinated a lot on all sorts of EU issues to try to make sure that Eastern Europe was well represented. They haven't met since the Ukraine conflict because the Poles and the Slovaks have said that um, they're so disgusted by by Viktor Orban's sort of um, fence straddling on this issue that they don't want to meet. And so, um, so you've actually seen a wedge being driven not between East and West, I think, but between Eastern Europe and Hungary itself. And so this is more a question, I think, of um, Hungary becoming more isolated within, within Europe and even within Eastern Europe. Um, because of, because of, uh, because of Russia. Um, and the other thing in terms of, you know, your question about the historical perspective, right? I mean, thinking back to Hungarian history, right? I mean, Hungary has never been on the right side of a war. Uh, <laughs> at least not in the past 150 years, right? And so in a way, this is par for the course. Um, uh, Unfortunately, right? So if you're looking for historical analogies, right? Um, you know, Hungary has, has, has never really chosen the right side and Hungary has never been able to avoid a war that has raged on its borders, right? Hungary is a landlocked country that has sort of seen every single, um, um, you know, um, army traipsed through its, its territory, whether it was the Turks, whether it was the Austrians, whether it was the Germans, whether it was the Russians, right? Um, and so this idea that somehow Hungary can keep out of a war that's a European war is just, you know, to anybody who's studied history, I think this is nonsensical. Um, but that I think is, you know, uh, to a certain extent, the, um, the, the, the historical analogy here. But, um, you know, um, the question of whether, whether history will repeat itself in that way course, is, is, is a more difficult. Well, and I, I guess one area for hope then is that so far, Hungary has at least cooperated uh, with most of its uh, Western allies in, 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 in trying to at least help the Ukrainians. So maybe they're on the right side this time, if, if that's the right side. Um, and, and, I, and I guess uh, the closing question we have for you, Lawrence, you know, as you know, we always like to close on an optimistic note, uh, well-informed, not naive, but still optimistic note. Um, if you were um, sitting in Washington right now and uh, advising um, whoever it, it is in the State Department and elsewhere who, who's concerned about Hungary or has the, the Hungarian portfolio, what advice would you give them for nurturing uh, a better relationship with Orban for the purposes of strengthening NATO and the EU, not, not, not pretending that Orban is ever going to um, accept the, all the positions the United States and Western Europe offer, but, but what kind of relationship do you see as a possibility that could be useful for both sides of that relationship? That's a tough one. I think there's the, the traditional ideas of how to pressure Orban into being um, you know, more friendly towards liberal norms and democracy and human rights, I think are all going to backfire because um, it adds fuel to the fire that these Western um, countries are trying to influence um, uh, the Hungarian political system and, and, and Orban is the only one that can protect the nation from that kind of interference. I think what I would say is to be very, very blunt with the European Union that the United States supports the EU taking a much harder line on Hungary. And this is where I think there might be a sea change coming because um, the European Union has been very, very slow to respond to um, corruption and to the, um, 
erosion of rule of law and and uh, democratic values in Hungary. Um, but I think that that tide is turning. And I don't actually think it has very much to do with Russia, actually. I think it's just, it's been a long time coming. Um, and I can, I can, ex I would expect that EU funds are going to dry up relatively soon. Um, and there's going to be many, many EU conditions on the rule of law that are going to come into force in the next couple of years. And I think having the US be very supportive of that, encouraging that, um, trying to, to hurry that along um, would probably be my best bet. I think other than that, I'm actually not very sure that there's much that the United States government can do to shift, um, uh, to shift the, the, the political calculus of, of Orban um, because all the things that were, that would be real threats or, um, or I think are just are unreasonable. It's, the United States is not going to threaten to with, withdraw Article 5 protections from Hungary at this moment. So I think that would just be, um, uh, you know, that, that's not within the realm of the possible. So I think right now it's just um, you know, trying to trying to support the, the EU cracking down a lot more on this kind of uh, rule of law backsliding. Gotcha. It's a very good point you raise, though. In a certain way, the United States is more dependent on Orban, and he has more leverage now because uh, we, do, we don't want him getting in the way of it aid shipments and other efforts to help the Ukrainians, which he could get in the way of if he wanted to be more obstructionist. And as you pointed out, he has not been actually that obstructionist. So um, in a sense, he has more leverage now than ever. I, I think that's true. And, you know, the, the usual things in terms of how one um, takes the, the long the long game approach, right? Supporting independent journalism and investigative journalism in Hungary, these kinds of things, right? Those at the end of the day are going to... Um, you know, once there is enough uh, political opposition to Orban, those are going to come come very much in handy. But those aren't going to fix the problems sort of in the next year or two. Those are long term investments in kind of uh, democracy and, and, and liberalism um, uh, abroad. Um, that you know, I mean, you've studied the, the Cold War, right? It took it took decades and decades of that to, to bear fruit. Um, but when it did, it guaranteed you know twenty years of, of absolutely American friendly allies in. Eastern Europe. So I think it was worth the investment. Absolutely. Well said. Well said, Lawrence. Zachary, um, your, your poem in between, it seems to me, you know, captures some of the themes that, that Lawrence has, has articulated so well and themes we come back to week after week, that in some ways, the future of democracy is defined less in the center and obvious places of power but often in the in-between spaces. Uh, that's true within societies. That's true between societies. Um, does, does this discussion of Hungary, does it, does it resonate with, with uh, the concerns that you think other young people have about foreign policy and democracy and future of Europe and European security? Yes, I, I think it does. I think we as Americans have a very hypocritical uh, view of the European Union as a dysfunctional institution, uh, and I think that hopefully this crisis and uh, in it, uh, will sort of shore up the institutions of the European Union, at least uh, from a symbolic perspective. Uh, and I think the, that the European response to uh, Hungary's nascent authoritarianism and uh, and sort of anti-Western uh, response to the war in Ukraine is definitely going to be at the center of that uh, European response. So I do think that it, it it will inspire at least greater confidence in the European Union if it goes well, uh, but if it goes badly, I think there is a there is a real possibility 
that uh, the European Union will lose credibility in the eyes of the world if it does not manage to respond to this crisis in Ukraine or continue to respond to this crisis in Ukraine with a united front. Interesting. So in, in a way, the stakes are higher than I think they've so. been before. Uh, At least from a public relations perspective. Right, right. But it does it does remind people why it matters. Exactly. Which is an yeah. opportunity. Um, well, uh, Lawrence, thank you for joining us today. You, you've elucidated, as only you can, the complex interconnections between uh, this tent we might call Orban on the side of the mountain and all, all the other powerful actors and camps uh, around him. I love that metaphor, Lawrence. Thank you for, for sharing your insights with us today. Well, happy to be here. And Zachary, thank you for your poem. Uh, and thank you most of all uh, to our loyal listeners for joining us for this episode of This Is Democracy. This podcast is produced by the Liberal Arts ITS Development Studio and the College of Liberal Arts at the University of Texas at Austin. The music in this episode was written and recorded by Harris Codini. Stay tuned for a new episode every week. You can find This is Democracy on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Stitcher. See you next time.